Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... How O.J. Beat the Rat All right, Mrs. Robertson. All right, Mr. Car- Mr. Uh, Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? Mrs. Robertson. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. Superior Court of the State of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in count two of the information. The first line of Charles Dickens' beloved Christmas carol reads, Marley was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Make no mistake, O.J. Simpson murdered his ex-wife and a virtual stranger in 1994 and was acquitted of the crime by a jury of his peers. If you disagree, you probably won't want to stick around, although I hope you will. So, who was responsible for this miscarriage of justice? Did the defense win? Did the prosecution lose? Who can we blame? In 1994, I watched a good deal of the trial, live coast to coast, or through the highlight reels on the nightly newscasts. For this revisiting of the case, I read many contemporary books on the trial, including books by Marcia Clark, the lead prosecutor, Mark Furman, the lead boogeyman, and the Inside the Jury Room tome, Madam Foreman, written by three of the jurors after the trial. In addition, I consulted with friend of the podcast, Stanley Goldman, lawyer, professor, legal analyst, and author. I had a very different slant than anybody else as to what the prosecution did wrong. First of all, I think they were totally outgunned. I mean, I you know, Chris Darden and Marsha Clark were prosecutors. Marsha had some experience. Chris had considerably less. But none of them really added up to the kind of experience that OJ hired in his team. Uh, Now, there was a member of the DA's team who was the leader of the team, who early in the trial had a 
seemingly heart attack or a palpitation right in the middle uh, of one of the proceedings and had to be, couldn't do it anymore. Uh, so that left Marsha, who was supposed to be the second chair in charge and Chris Darden brought in, you know, to be, be the, now the new second chair. And I, I thought they were, I mean, they're, they're not stupid people in the slightest, but they were, they were up against a, a multi-million dollar hired defense team. I mean, people shouldn't underestimate Robert Shapiro. He's a, he's a very, he was a very good lawyer. Uh, Johnny Cochran, um, Jerry Ullman, who had been dean at Santa Clara Law School, was the original guy on the team with Shapiro doing the, the paperwork, the, the motions. So this was a, a high-level team they put together. Famous California DA, the late Leo Bugliosi, in his book, Outrage, lays out five reasons why Simpson got away with murder. His first comments, as do many throughout the book, focus on the jury. He points out that there was so much in the air before the trial, including the slow-speed chase, as well as Simpson's celebrity, that there was really no way to impanel a jury with no knowledge of the case or prejudice in favor of the Jews. Marsha was very upset, I know, because from the transcripts of in-camera proceedings with the judge, was very upset that she believed many of the people picked for the jury were lying about their, their prejudices. She believed that a number of people had survived challenges and now remained on the jury because they had said, no, I, I could be fair and I can do this. Where in reality, they were, they were crypto, discreet, undercover, favoring OJ. And I think it wasn't so much that, that she was right. I think there was some credibility to that. But uh, I think the main thing was it haunted her through the whole trial. And I have a take on it that nobody else has. During the course of the trial, she tried one at a time to remove what she believed to be the stealth jurors on the jury. And so she succeeded because Lance Ito was trying to be, you know, you made an argument that this person, you know, had done something or said something or talked to somebody, didn't belong on the jury or had misrepresented something during the voir dire, the jury selection. He kick him off. Well, but Lance was trying to be completely fair balance. So the minute the prosecution kicked off a juror, the defense, like a few days later, would make an argument to kick off a juror. And Lance would grant it. And then Marsha would do it again. And then Cochran would do it again. And it went back and forth. And what it succeeded in doing was eliminating, in my opinion, from the jury, the strongest uh, voices. Uh, the people that First, Marsha didn't think were going to be her favorable to her, and then people Cochran didn't think would be favorable to her, to him. And, um, and by the time you were done, you ended up not only with only one or two, I think, of the 12 or something alternates you had when the trial started. So that was a danger the trial might fall apart if somebody else left. Um, but you also ended up with a jury that, in my opinion, had very few strong voices and all the possible strong voices for prosecution had been eliminated. 
Many critics of the verdict point to the ineptitude of prosecutors Marsha Clark and Chris Darden, not only for what they did, but more importantly for what they didn't do. Case in point, their decision not to present the infamous suicide note that Simpson left behind before he took off on the infamous slow-speed getaway. Those who insisted that Simpson was innocent opined that he wanted to commit suicide because he couldn't live without Nicole, not because he butchered her. That theory is laughable to me, but obviously not to the Clark Darden team, so the note was excluded. And that slow speed change. I remember at the time I was dating a very attractive young woman who eventually became a, a, a DA herself, um, but she was a, a, a young attorney and, and we, were, we were over at my place um, and uh, about to leave on a trip to Santa Barbara. So literally, I, she, she'd come over here, we were gonna take my car to Santa Barbara, and all of a sudden, the TV was on and the, the, the chase starts. And, and this, this, with OJ like going, you know, 20 miles an hour or something on the freeway with police in pursuit, you know, threatening to kill himself. And I'm watching this, I'm thinking, man, I really want this, you know, I really want to see this. I mean, this is, I got to see this, but I'm not saying anything because I already promised this girlfriend of mine, we're going to Santa Barbara for the weekend. And she was not from Los Angeles. She was, she was originally from, from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we're sitting there and I'm looking at her and she's kind of looking at me and I'm watching the slow speed chase on my big screen TV. And she goes, finally, do you mind if we skip Santa Barbara? I mean, I, I'm from Albuquerque and this sort of thing just doesn't happen there. And I'm going, you think it happens in LA? I mean, this is a... So, so we sat around and watched the rest of the slow speed chase, not never realizing how involved I would get in the trial at the time. Well, yeah, it made it to the trial. The prosecution, you know, you know, showed the video of the chase. And, you know, it's what we call uh, consciousness of guilt is the theory. I mean, it, even if you didn't view the confession, the, the, the letter, the note as a complete confession, it certainly suggested, we have a, we have a word we use as law professors, spoliation. It suggests it's trying to hide the evidence or obstruct justice, or you act with a consciousness of guilt, which is, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna kill yourself or you're gonna flee the, the police, you know, and sure, innocent people have been known to flee the police and innocent people have been known to kill themselves rather than go through a trial, but not as many as guilty people. And that's the point you make to the jury. Look, this is this you can take it for what it's for what you, you will, but it's it suggests that he didn't believe that he had a chance at a trial. And one of the reasons why he may not have believed it was because he did it. Aside from the chase itself, if if that weren't bad enough, in the escape car was a lame disguise, Simpson's passport, a gun, and ample cash. Nothing incriminating there. The prosecution also had recordings of Simpson's cell phone calls, which in one to his mom, O.J. complains that, quote, it was all her fault, ma, unquote.
So let's take a break from talking about what the prosecution didn't present, and let's talk about what they did present in the way of evidence. And please save the it-was-all-planted comments for later. I'll cover those ridiculous claims in a bit. Let's see, two bloody gloves. One found at the murder scene and one found at O.J.'s residence, with blood and other various markers on both indicating that they had both been at the murder scene. Blood spots in the Bronco, matching that of Nicole Simpson. A bloody partial footprint on the floor of the Bronco. Socks on the bedroom floor of Simpson, with spots of Nicole's blood on them. Two bloody footprints that match Bruno Magley's shoes the same size as O.J. No other tracks through the blood were found. The black watchman's cap with hairs from O.J. on it and fibers consistent with Ron Goldman's shirt. Drops of O.J.'s blood on the walkway of the murder scene. Well, as promised, time to deal with the elephant in the courtroom, Mark Furman. As they say on Law & Order, to save time, I will stipulate that Furman is a racist, used the N-word repeatedly in his career, and lied about it on the stand. Rotten cop? You bet. Even Marsha Clark said in her summation about her star witness, is he a racist? Yes. Is he the worst LAPD has to offer? Yes. Do we wish the LAPD had never hired him? Yes. In fact, do we wish that there was no such person on the planet? Okay, that's about Mark Furman the cop. But what about Mark Furman the investigator? Again, Professor Goldman. I thought Furman, by the way, was a first-rate detective and a police officer who I probably would have never hired. Uh, I mean, I, I had mixed feelings about Furman. I thought he did, he did an excellent job of deducing things, and, and from small bits of evidence gathered, I thought a case against, along with others, but I thought he was very good as a detective. I, I you know, having sat through the trial and listened to him and actually wrote a column about him for the New York Daily News, which was, by the way, the only column of the 90, I believe, I submitted to the New York Daily News that they didn't print. Because I was critical of Furman at a point in time when the New York Daily News, in effect, was writing favorable stuff about him. And Furman testified, and F. Lee Bailey, who younger people might not realize, was a very famous, flamboyant, you know, legendary trial lawyer, was already older at this point in time, in the latter part of his career. Effley Bailey had been assigned to cross-examine Furman when he testified. And um, I wrote a column saying, look, um, uh, Bailey said some really ridiculous things during cross-examination and asked some incredibly stupid questions. But he raised a couple of points, I said in this column, including 
getting Mark Furman out on a limb to say he'd never used the N word to, you know, he was never biased against black people. He never, he'd never used the N word, got him to say that. And I wrote in this column, I said, you know, I have no idea, but that could come back to haunt him if they find that he's has said that. Jurors are not asked to leave their common sense at the door. Now, arguably, there is room to believe there could have been some cross-contamination of blood samples, but wholesale sprinkling of blood to implicate O.J. Simpson and the murders? Even Judge Ito, in a ruling from the bench on the idea of planting of evidence, was skeptical. Quote, the underlying assumption that the glove was planted at Rockingham for the purpose of placing blame for two brutal and savage murders upon the defendant requires a leap in both law and logic to be made based on the evidence before the jury. Burn! Vincent Bugliosi, in his book Outrage, The Five Reasons Why O.J. Simpson Got Away with Murder, puts forth his own prosecution summation that he feels would have dismissed the planting of evidence folly. And I quote, To believe a frame-up, in addition to the many people who would have to be involved, you'd have to believe that the two teams of LAPD detectives in this case Lang and Van Meter, Furman and Phillips, who were from different divisions of the LAPD and didn't work with or know each other, arrive at the murder scene in the middle of the night, and all four suddenly agree that whoever killed these poor people, they didn't care. They were going to let the killer or killers go free. And instead, they all decided. There were no dissents to frame someone they believe to be innocent, O.J. Simpson, and in the process not only jeopardize their careers, but also risk their very lives, since if you plant evidence and testify falsely in a capital case in California, as we have already pointed out to you folks, under some circumstances you can get the death penalty yourself. What possibly could the motive be? And to the theory that Furman grabbed the second glove and pocketed it, more than 14 officers were on the scene at the murder before Furman arrived and swore that there was only one glove. How did he enlist them in his conspiracy? Vincent Bugliosi continues in his mock summation to the jury with just that question. Quote, what did Furman do? come up to these officers individually or in a group and say, listen, I don't know you guys too well. You're uniform and I've been working detective for quite a few years, but here's the skinny. I've got this thing about blacks. And you know, I'd like to see this SOB go down. So I need you guys to back me up on the witness stand and say that there was only one glove at the Bundy murder scene. Okay, I'll owe you one. Wouldn't something like this have had to happen, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, in order for there to have actually been two clubs at the murder scene and for Furman to have seized one and planted it at Rockingham? Are we really to believe not only that Furman lied on the witness stand, but that several other officers 
with nothing to gain, also agreed to jeopardize their careers and risk their lives to help him out? Before we turn to the jury and their role in all this, let's look a little bit more deeply into two aspects of the trial, the shoe print evidence and the glove modeling debacle. The, the Bruno Magli shoes. So here are footprints at the scene, the murder scene, of a pair of Bruno Maglis exactly like a kind bought by OJ allegedly. And of course, one of the things the defense did very cleverly was to insist on no continuances before the trial. So they got to trial, I think, before the prosecution really had its ducks in a row. Prosecution had not worked quickly enough. And one of the things that could have been affected by that is for the civil trial, and one of the reasons why O.J. Simpson was found liable in the civil trial, even by uh, what they call not just a preponderance of the evidence, which is just 50 plus percent, which is the normal rule. But in this case, because they were asking for punitive damages, which are extra damages, uh, that showing an intentional crime, not just an accidental crime, and that he was guilty of it, um, you have to, in California, prove that by what's called clear and convincing evidence, which is a lot closer than, 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 than you know, preponderance to beyond a reasonable out. And the jury still came back uh, with that in the civil case. And, and one of the reasons I thought was that by the time they got to the civil trial, the plaintiff's attorneys, those for, for Ron Goldman's family, had come across the victim of the case. They had come across a photo of O.J. Simpson taken at a football game wearing the Bruno Magli shoes that were in such dispute, a picture they never had at the criminal trial. Now, would that have made a difference? You know, I remember during the cross-examination of Mark Furman by F. Lee Bailey, Furman said, I mean, you know, he, uh, 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 F. Lee Bailey was arguing that no one person could have done this, killing two people like this, like that. And of course, ignoring the fact that O.J. Simpson had run through 300-pound linebackers. You know, it was not a normal person. Um, it was anything but. And, 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 you know, how could one person do this? And, and Furman's response was something like, well, there was only one pair of bloody shoes leaving the scene. One pair. And F. Lee Bailey literally said, did it never occur to you that perhaps one of the criminals carried the other one away? Perhaps the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in a courtroom. I literally carried the other way, so there'd only be finger, there'd only be footprints of one person there. But it was going to be a really boring day. I felt I was literally in my car on the freeway to the courtroom, and it was only a few blocks away. And I thought, man, eh, it's just going to be science this afternoon. It's going to be boring. I got work for school to do. I turned around and went back to my office. That was the bloody glove day. So I missed being in the courtroom when the prosecution. Chris Darden made the unplanned, unforced error, although he may have been coaxed into it by the defense, or at least so they let you believe, to ask OJ to try on the bloody glove, which was, had been dried out and, and obviously 
was this little tiny thing compared to what it had been and didn't fit on OJ's hand. Hence the, you know, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You know, uh, Johnny Cochran closing argument line, which all of us predicted he would say. I mean, I remember saying that that day. Well, Johnny Cochran's just say if the glove doesn't fit, you know, his client's not guilty. You know, I remember saying that later, but I, I missed the opportunity to be in the courtroom and see that. That would have probably been the greatest moment of ever, ever, of any trial I'd ever been in. And I missed that. Time to take on the jury. The final makeup of the jury, nine women, three men, nine African-American, one Hispanic, and two whites. You may decide for yourself whether race had anything to do with letting O.J. Simpson escape justice. But take it directly from Johnny Cochran. Quote, for some time, it has been open season on African-American males. If it can happen to Michael Jackson or O.J., it can happen to any of us. Only one example of the endless incendiary rhetoric spewed by the scheme team. Mark Furman's appellation, not mine. The race card was even too much for Dream Team member Robert Shapiro, who was quoted as saying, Bailey's continual use of the N-word did nothing but heighten racial tensions both inside and outside the courtroom and was completely unnecessary. After the trial, jurors Amanda Cooley, Carrie Bess, and Marsha Rubin Jackson wrote a book which offers a good look into the minds of the jurors. Five additional jurors joined them in a forum where they answered submitted questions from the press and celebrity lawyers. Although the authors often claim that race didn't affect them, sometimes some honest feelings slipped into print. Marsha Rubin Jackson writes about her take on witness Mark Furman. Quote, When I heard those things about the N-word, it was just like a hot flash hit me. It just made me realize how badly I hate that word. For him to sit up there and pretend that he never used it made me feel like jumping up and slapping him down then and there. And then there was this in the book by juror Michael Knox. The forensic and all the other evidence put him at the crime scene, he says. That was indisputable. Without a doubt, he was definitely there. The shoe print, the gloves, I do believe were definitely his. The fiber in the Bronco and all the other evidence definitely put him at the crime scene. And yet, for whatever reason, Michael was able to convince himself that there was reasonable doubt that O.J. Simpson was the killer. To be fair to the jury, we have the benefit of evidence they didn't get to see.
either because it wasn't presented, the photo of O.J. and the Bruno Maglis, uh, the excluded results of two lie detector tests that O.J. failed, or this little tidbit that was excluded by Judge Ito. And I remember that there was one incident in which O.J. was talking to a former football player, friend of his, named Rosie Greer. Great, great linebacker, Rosie Greer, Hall of Famer. And after he'd left football, he'd gone into the ministry and had come to visit O.J. in jail. And uh, um, there were all sorts of conversations, but O.J. was given uh, like his own separate room at the jail, at the L.A. County Jail, to meet with people in so that it wouldn't be the normal, you know, little you know, glass surrounded cubicle. You might sit in with your lawyer or something. He was going to, he got his own like spacious room that was created just for him. And he was talking so loudly during this one conversation that there were sheriffs from the sheriff's department at the jail who could hear him basically confessing to the crime. And they wanted, to t the prosecution had called them to testify. Because, you know, there's, there's a privilege against self-incrimination, there's attorney-client privilege, there's, there's, there's minister, you know, uh, parishioner privileges in California where things said to them can't be used, but only if you are reasonable. I mean, if you let someone else listen, it breaks the privilege. If you're, if you're talking to your lawyer on a bus that's crowded and you're talking at the top of your voice, the attorney-client privilege doesn't apply. You know, if you're raising your hand in a congregation as a church and you're talking to your minister, you know, every people listen, it doesn't apply. So OJ had talked at the top of his lungs and it was basically a confession. Now, whether it would have affected the jury, I don't know. They might've thought the police were just lying about this, but I'm just saying this because the defense made a motion to exclude it. And Lance Ito granted the motion to exclude and I think if he'd realized how close the case really was, I, you know, bending over backwards so that nobody could argue, you know, that he had not been fair in this case. And he had actually helped pick the room to make certain there'd be no problems with it, not realizing OJ with this big booming voice would be yelling in effect. And so that the sheriffs who were a number of feet away, you know, could hear what he was saying. So Lance decided, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not allow the prosecution to use this, this information, which was clearly damaging to the defense. Believe it or not, I really don't want to beat up on the jury, but truth be told. The ultimate decision was in their hands. But in my gut, I am still not convinced about the jurors' claims that race did not enter into their deliberations. The most telling story concerned juror Lionel Lon Cryer. Although it didn't play on TV because video shots of the jury were not allowed during the trial, still photos show Mr. Cryer upon exiting the box, shooting Simpson a black power salute. 
what came out later was that Cryer was also a former member of the Black Panther Party. I don't feel the jurors did themselves any favors by writing books and appearing on TV shows. Nancy Grace, in an interview years after the trial, shared an experience of her interaction with former jurors. I was standing there and a beautiful stretch limo came up. And all the ladies that wrote that book about the case, they all were getting into their limo. And one of them had her arm on the door just before she got in. She turned and she said, you know, Nancy, the O.J. Simpson case, this trial is the best thing that ever happened to me. I get to come to New York. I get all these nice clothes. I get all these interviews. I get to stay in all these hotels and fancy dinners. I mean, it's been great. And she shut the door. And the limo drove off. And it started snowing. And I remember thinking about Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman lying there in blood. I started crying and it didn't even feel cold anymore. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Well, I think you all know what my opinion is, but in closing, how about my guest? Stanley Goldman. That trial was a, a, a horrible reminder, even a quarter of a century ago, as to how divided the country is. There were, there were two different trials being viewed. There was a trial that the white public seemed to be viewing and a trial that the black public seemed to be viewing. And um, there had been so many injustices to black defendants. Uh, you know, look, I was, I was a public defender for eight years, uh, my entire eight years, with the exception of a three months, was spent in downtown Los Angeles. I represented primarily a, 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 a diverse, a minority uh, community as, as a public defender for eight years. I was a county public defender. I wasn't a federal public defender where, where things are different. I was, I was a ground level. That's what I wanted to do. I had taken the job right out of law school, and I spent eight years there until I left it to be a law professor. Um, uh, I, there were so many, you know, things about being black and being tried that would not have been the case if you were white and being tried. There's no question about it. The problem is, of course, that um, uh, it, it, so, it, there was such suspicion of the police uh, that people were willing to believe even such outlandish explanations as provided by the OJ defense for a possible conspiracy against O.J. Simpson. And, um, you know, I said once on TV, it could have been misunderstood. I said that I, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know who did it, but I sure hope O.J. Simpson is, is innocent because he's certainly getting a defense worthy of an innocent man. Um, and, um, you know, and I don't think he was. And I, I remember speaking at some events to audiences after the trial. Um, and the reaction of the audiences to my conclusion that there was there was overwhelming evidence of guilt and I thought the prosecution had made some mistakes and the defense had done some very good things but I still think in the end it to me it was astonishing they couldn't get anybody on the jury to hold out for guilty uh I would get very different reactions from an audience that was primarily white as opposed to an audience that was primarily black um and um 
uh, I would get very extreme, I mean, reactions from audiences when I'd say that. Um, and and it, was, it was an example of, uh, of race in America. We're seeing it now in these, in these trials. Um, uh, the belief that a defendant who was black would be easily convicted where a defendant would, who was white might be, might be easily acquitted of the same charge. And I, I think that was in the back of the jurors' minds just about does it for today's episode of well whoa, 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 wait a minute early on i did say that i was going to um have a little comparison at the end of the podcast uh of the oj simpson case and the lizzie borden murder case so uh, let me just uh, account just a few of the similarities between the two murders each spawning the trial of the century in two different centuries First, despite overwhelming evidence, both defendants were acquitted in record time. Lizzie's jury was out for only an hour. Both used sharp, cutting murder weapons and practiced overkill during their bloody rampages. Neither weapon was ever found. Contrary to legend, none of the hatchets or the hatchet head presented at Lizzie's trial as exhibits was the murder weapon. There were blood spots on socks found on O.J.'s bedroom floor that matched Nicole's blood. Lizzie had traces of blood on a dress that she conveniently burned before the authorities could get their hands on it. Both had rather strange alibis for the time of the murders, O.J. hitting golf balls in the dark and Lizzie hanging out in the loft of a barn looking for tin to mend a screen on the hottest day in the memory of Fall River. And each had a confidant that might have known more than they testified to. Lizzie had Bridget, the Irish maid, and O.J. had Cato Kalin, whatever he was. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Murder Most Foul, and you'll tell your friends. I'd like to thank my guest, Stanley Goldman, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention his wonderful book, a riveting memoir entitled Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream. Subtitled, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother, can be found online at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble as well. Please check out our website at www.murdermostfowl, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com, where you can download other episodes and leave comments and suggestions. Until next time, stay safe, and for God's sake, don't murder anyone. Thank you.